So the question we're looking at today is what are the limits, if any, to our freedom in Christ? What are the limits to our freedom in Christ? So we're in a, a, a series looking at creating a gospel culture here in Anthem. What is the culture that we're trying to create? And we're doing that by examining the book of Corinthians, where the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthian church and helping them to shift some of their cultures uh, to make sure that their culture was gospel-based. And so we've been looking at sexuality, what is uh, their culture around sexuality, what should our culture be around sexuality, around divisions in the church and tribalism and cliques and and who you follow, that sort of thing. And today we're looking at the do's and don'ts around food and drink. (laughs) Uh, Just after our fasting announcement, that's what we're going to be looking at. What are the limits of our freedom, if any? So we uh, have the privilege, Richard and I and our family, of living in a beautiful home where we can watch the sunrise uh, in the morning. And every morning, that's my view. I get to sit and enjoy the freedom of just having a moment, watching the sunrise with Jesus, and enjoying a guilt-free relationship with God, enjoying a relationship with God where I don't have to earn His favor, I don't have to be uh, feel guilty for my past mistakes, but I can just enter into a beautiful, free relationship with Him. But if you zoom in a little bit on that picture, you'll see a boy and a dog who do not feel very free. They are desperate to live beyond the wall and beyond the fence, both of them. One of them, because he is an unneutered adolescent that wants to spread his wild oats, and the other one is our dog, Bear. I'm I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Bear is the one that's unneutered and wants to spread his wild oats. He also has a taste for sardines and loves to run down to the beach. And the other one is our 16-year-old boy. And parenting teenagers, we've had a few of them. I think we're up to five, five teenagers now, we've realized, Richard and I, in sitting and praying and trying to find wisdom in parenting teenagers, have come up with this analogy of a bull elephant being moved into a new game reserve, that a young bull elephant being moved into a new game reserve is first kept in a smaller enclosure, right, so that they can acclimatize to the environment that they're in. And when we parent young children, we keep them in in closer boundaries. It makes them feel safe. It's it's helpful for their security and their development. But as they grow older, a good, natural, healthy, beautiful teenager wants to break those boundaries. They just become frustrated and they want to go beyond the, the small fences that you put around them. And so we decided that in dealing with these children that just want to look over the wall, that for the boy at least, we would drop some of the fences and enlarge his space, enlarge the area around him. And so he responded the way every young bull elephant responds in that moment, by going as fast as he could to the furthest fence and seeing if he could get out through that one as well. And that's normal. That's normal for all all of us as humans. We want to know what are the limits of my freedom? Where does it end? Where do the do's end and the don'ts start, so to speak? What are the limits of my freedom? But that kind of looking for the limits is adolescent freedom. It's not mature freedom. 
What does mature gospel freedom look like? So we read in 1 Corinthians 10, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So that shows us that gospel freedom doesn't look like fortifying the fences, neither the small fences nor even the bigger fences. It doesn't look like fortifying fences. It looks like something different. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And in our Christian culture, some of us grew up uh, in, in Christendom when South Africa was, had laws based on, on, on Christian morality. And as those, that progresses, it brings a lot of freedom to us. It brings a lot of freedom in the way we engage. And sometimes you can go to a Christian party, and it looks like quite a lot of open debauchery, actually. Whereas you'll go to a context where there, are contexts where there is a little bit more religious rigor, a little bit more fundamentalism, perhaps, and it looks a lot more controlled. I remember speaking recently when Richard and I were in Qatar in the Middle East to Christians who were raising their children in a Muslim fundamentalist state and, and saying that they enjoyed it. They enjoyed the benefit of having more rules. It's illegal to have a baby outside of wedlock there. You'll get thrown in jail if you fall pregnant out of wedlock. And they were saying how, how they enjoyed the benefit of that. But the truth is that as soon as you look under the surface, that kind of fundamentalism just is, creates hidden debauchery, which can be even more dangerous. So what does Christian freedom look like? We, we don't want to head towards open debauchery, but neither do we want the, the hidden rottenness that comes with legalism and fundamentalism. So it is clearly not based on running for the fences. It's clearly not based on trying to understand uh, the fences. But our freedom in Christianity is love-based. Love-based freedom is what we're going to be talking about today. The big idea of today is that love-based freedom is given in love. Because God loved the world, he, he gave his one and only son so that we can receive the grace that allows our freedom but because it's given in love, it must be maintained in love. It must be expressed in love. It must be anchored in love. So how does that look? How do we remain free from religious fundamentalism, but not using our freedom to run for the fence? How do we live in the space of all things are permissible, but respect the fact that not all things are beneficial? And as we carry on, we'll see that verse goes on to say, not all things are good for building others up. So the context in this scripture we're looking at, you can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 9, and 10 for this specific, uh, this specific culture creating. And in that context, Paul is dealing with the idea of food that has been offered to idols. So 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 opens up with now, concerning food that has been offered to idols. So that's what we're talking about. That's what he's speaking into. And the context was that Corinth was a place where many people have come, come out of idol worship into the church. They were used to attending feasts where they would eat food that had been offered to idols, dedicated to idols, and partake in that feast. And now they were in this Christian environment. And there were some in, that Christian, in the Christian church who said, meat is meat. It really makes no difference to me. I don't have to uh, pussyfoot around wondering whether or not this meat has been dedicated to idols. There's no such thing. The idols are not alive, so there is no power over this thing, so I can eat freely. 
But the trouble is there were others who had recently come out of that idol worship. And so to them, to sit down at a feast and eat meat that had been dedicated to idols was really conflicting to their consciences. They, they felt like they were doing something wrong. This is what they had been saved out of and rescued out of. So how could they partake freely, even though in their heads they knew that the idols were not real gods? And so that is the, the problem. And Paul's takeaway, Paul's solution was, if food is going to make my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat again lest I made my brother stumble. Quite a, a strong statement. I don't know if many of us who have enjoyed a little taster of biltong this morning would be willing to give that all up for the sake of brothers who may or may not stumble. The trouble is that with looking at, what, at the do's and don'ts and expanding them, the Christians in this context who said, we are allowed to eat the meat, it, this falls into the category of do, do eat dedicated meat, because there's no, there's no such thing as idle, so it doesn't matter. They're still worrying about the do's and don'ts. They're still worrying about where the fences are. Even though they are now dealing with fences that are further, further out, their focus is still on fence living. They haven't moved on to waterhole living, if we can use that in comparison, where we look at where the life comes from, where the source comes from. And so even within our context here in South Africa in the last 20, 30 years, we have come from a place where we were living in Christendom, and there were a lot of conservative rules that we may have been uh, familiar with in the church. And as time has gone on, there's been a grace movement in the last two decades that has said, hang on a second, I think that people are putting rules on you and telling you that if you do these do certain things, you won't be in favor with God. They're making you feel like you have to earn your favor with God. That is wrong. Grace is correct. True. But then the pendulum swings to this side of, of pointing fingers and saying, look at us. We're enjoying freedoms that you are not enjoying. You are wrong. You're immature. You are not yet worshiping without a head covering or uh, enjoying a glass of wine with your meal or uh, being free to listen to secular music or whatever it was in, in your context. The, it's still focusing on the do's and don'ts. It's just shifted the fences. And we are not fence dwellers. That's not what gospel-based freedom looks, looks like. A gospel culture doesn't look like focusing on the fence and focusing on the do's and don'ts. So let's read the scripture a little bit more deeply. 1 Corinthians 8 from verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. There is this idea that it's not about what you know in terms of rules. It's about who you know, God. If you know God, you know love, and love is your focus. You're a, a waterhole dweller. You're focused on where freedom is coming from, where love is coming from, and so you're not obsessed with the fences. If you think you know, it says, I know that we are now allowed to do this, then perhaps you don't know as you ought to know, because you're talking about knowing what the permissibles 
as opposed to knowing God. Our freedom, if you, to use a different uh, metaphor than the waterhole, our freedom comes from love. So freedom is the fruit of the tree that is rooted, anchored in love. As soon as we pull up our roots from love and start to focus on the fruit, we're a tree that's never going to sustain life if we're trying to, trying to root ourselves into the fruit of freedom. Freedom is a fruit of love. If we focus on the freedom and disconnect from love, then I don't think that we are free anymore. Our freedom is now something that is going to wither up and die if it's not anchored, growing in love. So I think there are some in this context who have been, can take this uh, as a very obvious, it's a very clear parallel to your situations where perhaps there are some here who have who have been freed from Hinduism or from other religions, from African uh, spiritualism, and they can literally say there were feasts and there were things that I partook in that I can no longer partake in with a clear conscience. Uh, and when other people are able to do that freely, it's confusing. So they're, they're, some of us can apply this very literally. But if we take a little bit more of a general view of how does this land in our context, uh, we have within Anthem a ministry called Anthem Recovery that deals with recovery from addiction. So here we have an interesting scenario. We have some who used to live in the legalism that they weren't allowed to drink alcohol, who are now enjoying the freedom of, hang on a second, that was a rule that was put on us, and actually we can do this to the glory of God. We can uh, have a glass of wine with our meal, and we have others that used to be in idolatry <laughs> to alcohol or things related to alcohol, who when they look at that think, I've been rescued out of idolatry to these things into a community who are centering their social lives around wine and beer. It's, it's terribly confusing. How do I find my freedom? As somebody who has come out of addiction, how do I find my freedom in that space? And I know we're being terribly quiet because none of us want to give up our freedoms in this area. But our freedom, remember, has to be based in love. How do we love people who have idol-worshipped things that we enjoy in freedom? How do we love people who have idol-worshipped things that we enjoy in freedom? I'll just let that question hang for a second <laughs> and move on to Paul. So Paul now in chapter 9, uh, he uses himself as an example. So he says, am I free? Yes, absolutely. Am I an apostle? Yes, absolutely. You guys are proof of that. Uh, I'm your apostle, so that's obvious. As an apostle, there are certain rights that I have. And so, uh, so first of all, he says, be imitators of me. Copy me. You're welcome to copy me as I copy Christ. He wraps this whole thing up with that scripture. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, watch. This is what I do. He says, have I made use of any of the rights that I have as an apostle? It's written in the law of Moses that you shouldn't muzzle an ox while he works. In other words, um, th that was quite literally, you shouldn't put a muzzle on an ox that's busy dealing with wheat. And it is, a, again, a metaphor for you shouldn't stop someone from benefiting from the work that they are part of. And he goes on to explain, Paul, a, a few verses later, he says, if I am proclaiming the gospel 
as an apostle, then I have a right to be living off of the gospel. I have a right to, to earn a salary from that, to earn an income from that. And then he says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. So he shows an example of when he has allowed himself to limit his rights for the sake of others. So he says, I'm free. I'm free from all of them, but I choose from all of the laws, but I've chosen to make myself a bondservant of all. So when I go to people who are under the law, I, I come as one of them under the law. When I go to people who are free from the law, I come as one of them, free from the law. Obviously, and he, he specifies, not free from morality, but free from the, from the, the, ritual, the rituals of, of legalism. So he says, I, I am free to do that, but I choose to lay my, myself down for the sake of others, so that I may win some. To the weak, I become weak, that I may win the weak. And so he specifies his reason here. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You'll see I've, I've underlined two differing, two opposing balancing concepts here, one of them being rights and one of them being shared blessings. So the human rights movement is an incredible movement over the last number of decades that has brought a lot of necessary freedom and changes to laws and release people from oppression. Uh, and it has been an amazing, amazing movement but it is limited in the fact it falls short in the idea that it is dealing with humans as standalone entities. And the trouble with that is if I have a right to free speech and you have a right to not be slandered, those rights can sometimes be in conflict with one another, and that's when people go to court and have to try and figure out how to manage the fact that our rights may overwrite one another. So rights are difficult because they are based on the premise that each human is a standalone entity, and so that is a challenge. There is a different way of looking at it. Paul suggests that throughout Scripture we read that actually there's this idea of shared blessings. There's this idea of common good of us being one. Human rights imagines that us together, we've chosen to be together here, that we are some of individuals, but the Bible speaks of us put together by what, what Jesus has done as one new man, as a new entity. So what is the common good? What is the shared blessing of us as one entity? Richard and I were at dinner the other night with his brother, and he was telling a story about an obstacle race, a team obstacle race that he had been a part of. And it was him, uh, another guy, and a third guy called Dave, who was incredibly competitive. And so he says, you know, I should have known better than to do this team obstacle race with Dave. Because the, the start line, the, the gun goes at the start, and Dave is off. Boy, it's no team race for him. He's over the obstacles. So these two, and Dave's very competitive and very athletic, so he speeds off ahead. And Tony and the third guy, I don't know what his name was, the th they, they carry, carry along over the obstacles. And after a while, they come across Dave, who's waiting for them by one of the obstacles. He's come to this very tall obstacle that he's realized it takes three people to get over. 
And so he's been waiting there while all the other teams have gone past, very frustrated. And finally, the other two arrive. And the idea for this obstacle, Dave says, don't worry. I've watched it. I know what to do. Okay, Tony, you get on this guy's shoulders. And then I'm going to literally climb up the first guy, climb up the second guy, and reach the top, which Dave proceeds to do. The trouble is that once he gets to the top, he's so excited that he got to the top that he climbs down the other side and disappears, leaving his two mates at the, at the, start, <laughs> at the bottom of the obstacle. They could have only got up if, as a, as a threesome, they were able to pull each other up. So Dave had the right to get to the finish line, but what he did not get was the shared blessing of a win because it took the team getting across the finish line <laughs> for them to be able to win the team obstacle course racing. We are one in freedom. We are one in Christ. And it takes all of us crossing the line of freedom for us to have freedom. So if I am uh, struggling with alcohol usage and I decide that I'm going to abstain, Richard decides well, he's going to help me along, so he's also going to abstain. In uh, recovery, there is this concept that Richard shouldn't do it for my sake, because then it puts on me the responsibility of carrying not only my own abstinence, but now I'm carrying the abstinence of Richard as well. It's a, it's a heavy responsibility for me to carry, which makes sense when we are the sum of individuals and we each have rights. Now, I am carrying his responsibility and limiting his rights. However, in marriage, we are one. And if I don't succeed in, this, in freedom in this area, then Richard's usness has been compromised. So while he's not necessarily, he's not doing it for himself, he's also not doing it just for me. He's doing it for us. What is the us that needs freedom? And can we always consider that and, and so that we can Follow the example of Paul where he says, I don't make use of my rights. Yes, I have the right to do this, but I won't participate in shared blessing. So what's the point? My, what is the point of my rights if I don't get the shared blessing of crossing the finishing line in victory? And so what are the practical applications? And in chapter 10, Paul gives us some practical applications of how this is going to look together. The first one is, be ruthless around idolatry. And so he looks at Israel as an example to the people of Corinth that he's speaking to, and he says, learn a lesson from them. All of them were, were rescued from Egypt. They were all came through the Red Sea. They were all under the cloud. They all ate the manna. They all drank from the water miraculously that came from the rock. They were participants, and yet not all of them lived in the favor of God and were able to enter the promised land because as it says there in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 7, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They participated in idolatry and sexual immorality and grumbling and a whole lot of things while they were in the community of God. The scary thing is that this scripture comes from a time and a place in Exodus where it says that all the people were now just out of the desert. Moses is up the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, and they take off their gold and their jewelry, and they give it to Aaron, and Aaron collects it all, and he makes a golden calf. The golden, the, the golden calf, they say, is representative of the Lord, and Aaron says to, says to them, tomorrow will be a feast to the Lord, to God, who has rescued us. And they rose up early the next day, 
did their worship, which included burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Their idolatry was done in the name of God, and they missed out on entering the promised land. That is really, really scary. They did it in the name of the Lord. What are we fooling ourselves into thinking that we do in the freedom of being a Christian and not having to worry about all the legalities and rules that we are actually doing in idolatry to our own desires? What are the freedoms that we are doing that we think we're enjoying because we're in Christ when we're actually in idolatry to our own desires? Some of the steps of uh, the recovery program in this church and around the world includes a ruth, not a ruthless, a fearless inventory of what we are part of, a fearless inventory of what we are doing. John spoke two weeks ago of us having a seared conscience. When we don't feel guilty about something, sometimes it's because there's nothing to feel guilty about. Sometimes it's because our conscience is seared in that area and we can no longer feel guilty about it. Are we willing to take a fearless look at what we might be doing that is provoking God to jealousy? Secondly, Paul teaches to be sensible about what you partake in. So in verse 15, he says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And he, remembering that this is specifically about the eating the meat that has been dedicated to idols, he says, when we come together as a church and we eat the bread that is given in communion and we drink the wine that is given in communion, we do it as a symbol that we are partaking in Christ, right? So if you are going to eat and drink the feast of idols, What do you think it means? Be sensible about what you're partaking in. Again, for us, if you are specifically in a context where it is an idol feast, such as Hinduism or whatever, then you can apply that literally. For us, it's slightly more tricky. Be sensible about what you partake in. I think the best analogy I can give is, I'll drink to that. (laughs) We have a, a, a saying that we say, I'll drink to that. I'll partake in that. I can celebrate that. I can be a part of that. Cheers. What are we drinking to that is not of God? What are we partaking in, whether it's something we're watching, a conversation we're joining, a joke we're laughing at, something we're cheersing to? Might there be things that we're partaking in that if we just actually look sensibly, we think, wow, that that is not of God. That is not something that I can actually partake in sensibly if I stop and and really look at it. And then thirdly, he says, seek the good of others. So back to that, uh, that, that verse about all things being permissible, this translation says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And he specifies here, in, and in not all, uh, uh, all things are lawful. He says, don't be legalistic and, and fearful. Don't be running around thinking, oh, you know, is, is, this, is this meat dedicated to idols? I've bought it from the shop. I'm not too sure. We, we don't have to be fearful. We, we honestly can live in, in the freedom. Don't, let's not lose the freedom and, and take hold of the legalism again. We don't need to be fearful. All things are lawful. If your conscience is good, it's, it's good. It's great. However, not all things are helpful. So can we consider, not necessarily for our own consciences, but for the consciences of others, for the sake of others, can we think, well, I don't know if partaking in this is going to be, 
in this moment is going to be good for those around me. I don't know that we're all going to come out of this with a clear conscience. And if we're not all going to come out of it with a clear conscience, then is it worth it? Is it worth it? So a silly example, well, not a silly example, something that was a while about it, when we had little kids, Richard and I looked at the idea of Christmas trees and Easter eggs being things that had come from pagan tradition. Did we, did we still want to celebrate in that way? And we went down a journey of, of, of putting them aside, and then we decided that actually we, we had, in our good conscience, we were able to take part in those things. We were able to have Easter eggs at Easter. That was where we landed at the end of that journey. But if we come across somebody who's, who we're sitting there and it's Easter and they're saying, how can you eat that? This has been dedicated to idols. Okay, take it. It's not precious. I don't need to eat Easter eggs this Easter. If it's going to bother you, it, I really do. it's not precious. Anything that is more precious to me than you is idolatry. <laughs> Nothing is more precious than each other. Those are, to, to me growing up, Christmas trees and Easter eggs and all of those things, they, they were actually sacred. They were part of my family's sacred tradition. But as I come into a greater knowledge and awareness of them, those things are not more sacred than you, than our love for each other, than what we mean to each other. Our freedoms are not more sacred than our love for each other. Our freedoms are just fruit <laughs> of the love that God has given us. And then uh, finally, in these lists of, of practical outworkings, can we do all to the glory of God? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. There are maybe many more things than you realize that you can do to the glory of God and perfect freedom. But Let's look at a couple of questions that will help us to practically land these outworkings uh, that you can think about as you're going about, going about making decisions in the next little while. Questions to ask yourself. The first one is, do I feel guilty about this? <laughs> as, you, as you're taking part in something, do you feel guilty about it? That maybe consciously, actually, I do feel guilty about it. Maybe it's subconsciously. Maybe you have to actually stop. Give yourself time, allow the Holy Spirit to unsear your conscience in an area and say, actually, if I stop and think about it, do I feel guilty about it? When I take a fearless inventory, inventory on this, do I feel guilty about it? Second question, do I need to grow in my understanding of freedom around this? Is my conscience weak, as, as Paul said? Maybe I think there's something wrong with this, but as I grow in my understanding of the limitlessness of my freedom, the fact that all things are lawful, maybe I can grow in this area. Maybe I can find that I have more freedoms than I realized. Do I need to grow in my understanding of this, my understanding of my freedom in this area? And then thirdly, am I ready or able to do this to the glory of God? <laughs> So am I able to do, is this even something you can, that can be done for the glory of God? And am I ready to do it to the glory of God? Is this something that I can do with a clear conscience? This can't only be determined by us because we are one new man. So together, as, as, I, as I ask you the question, as we, uh, as we collaborate together on this, can, do you think that I can do this to the glory of God? Or am I perhaps hiding my own conscience in this area? Maybe I can't and you can see that. Am I able to do this for the glory of God? And then fourthly and finally, am I willing or able to not do this for the sake of others? Is it, is it possible that I, to not do this? And am I willing to not do this? This is a tricky one 
Because if you are free to participate in it, in Jesus, then you should be equally free to not participate in it. If you're not free to withhold, then chances are, if you can't restrain your freedom for the sake of others, is it a freedom? Or has it perhaps slipped into the area of idolatry? Has it perhaps slipped into something that has control of you? Let's not put our liberty first, our freedom first. Love leads liberty. Let's not put the cart before the horse. It is, it is love that has given us freedom. It is love that has, is the source of, of our freedom. So let us live in that love-based freedom, preferring one another, thinking of each other, always holding our freedoms loosely and clinging tightly to love. Our freedoms are just products of the love that we've experienced. We want to be willing to, to lay them down at any moment. And within these chapters of, of eight, to, 8 to 10, if you go and study them yourselves as we're walking on this journey together, you'll see that there is a couple of verses on what it might look like to practice restraint, to resist temptation, to discipline ourselves so that, that, that this area, whatever area it is, is still a freedom for us. And they, that may look like, as you realize, wow, I actually cannot restrain this freedom. I don't have freedom in this area. I am actually one of those who is in idolatry in this area. We have the beautiful ministry of Anthem Recovery that meets on a Wednesday night that you could come and be a part of and just say, I actually, I'm not sure that I'm in freedom. Can you help me to establish that? Can you help me to go on a journey of getting free of this thing so that I am free to lay my life down for the sake of others. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because I'm free, I'm able to be a bondservant. A bondservant is somebody who was in slavery, was set free from slavery, but from love chooses to remain in servitude. That is the model of Jesus. That is the model of Paul. Can we in our freedom choose to remain in servitude to one another so that as a collective, we can cross the finishing line in the shared blessing of freedom for all, clear consciences for all, guilt-free living for all. Not so focused on looking over the wall and wishing for more freedom, wishing for our boundaries and our limits to just be a little bit pushed out and a little bit further, but enjoying the absolute freedom of shared blessing because we are anchored in love in waterhole living. Will you pray with me? God, when, when we look at our freedoms, when we look at our privileges, it's not something that we give up easily. God, would you help us now, as a community, to create the culture where our freedom is based on love, it is given through love, it is exercised in love, and it is willfully restrained by love. We give ourselves to you, God. Father, would you forgive us where our indulgence in our freedom may have caused others to get a guilty conscience, to sin? Would you help us to know what this means, God? In the name of Jesus, I just lift up any legalism that this message may have put on people, where people are now feeling guilty. I just lift that up in the name of Jesus. You have given us freedoms. All things are lawful. 
but not all things are beneficial. Would you help us to live in that, in that space of benefiting others, of edifying others, of choosing to live in that space, of choosing to be bond servants to love? In Jesus' name, amen.